looking at a birth plan, it is a, it is a piece of paper, right? You're writing these things mm-hmm. down, but there's a kinesthetic piece to it because you're taking an active physical approach to your care. Welcome to the In Between Mama podcast, a place to rest in between who you are and who God is calling you to be. I'm your host, Riley Sandral, and today I'm excited to welcome my guest, Gianna Vasconcelos. Gianna is a perinatal health educator, doula, student midwife, and she has her master's in public health. She is passionate about creating a culture that values and respects pregnancy and birth and ultimately the women that take that journey. She is super passionate about improving positive, holistic maternal health outcomes, and I actually started following her because of her passion for talking about maternal care deserts and how to walk into birth supported even when the infrastructure isn't naturally there. I am really excited for this episode. It's going to be a really good one. Uh, So yeah, we're going to quickly hop over to the uh, video and let's talk with Gianna. Hi, Gianna. Will you please introduce yourself, your certifications, and a little bit about your story? Sure, yeah. So I'm Gianna. Last name is Vasconcelos. I got my master's in public health, like you said, and I did focus on there were no concentrations available. I graduated in 2013, but I focused, I I created my own concentration. I focused on maternal health and child um, health, and that was back, yeah, in 2013. All of my projects are around that, and then later, I was more, well, during that time and a little bit after, I was more focused on the research side of it, data collection statistics, getting those things together for the purpose of improving improving outcomes, right? And I'm putting air quotes on that because <laughs> we're still in the same place, if not we're mm-hmm. And so then I started thinking, well, you know, for such a developed country, uh, the United States is, why do we have one of the worst maternal health outcomes? and infant mortality, and low breastfeeding rates, and high birth trauma rates, and high cesarean rates when it's supposed to be 15%. It's like underneath 15%. We're over 32. Like all of these questions just started floating around in my head, and I'm thinking, well, I wonder if families know this information or have this information, and if they don't, what if they did have this information, and how can we put it back into their hands and help them become accountable, not just for their care, but also creating a care team that supports the birth that they're looking for and so at that point I thought okay I'm going to go into childbirth education and I want to share sort of the mechanics behind childbirth and how such how it's such a normal process that we overcomplicate and give parents some you know real tangible information on how they can apply that to their experience. And as I started teaching, I fell in love. I fell in love talking to families. I fell in love especially talking with mothers and hearing their questions and um, not so much the questions, but the roots of the questions about why are we asking if I'm allowed to do something with my own body? Why are mm-hmm. we asking these questions? Or are, are they gonna let me change position? Like those questions just really started making me feel um, sad for, for us as not just the human species of how how easily we've given up our own fundamental autonomy but us as women how we are such a powerful part of the species and we literally 
birth the next generation and we are raising the next generation, yet we have such little value in who we are and self-awareness of what we can bring to the table. And so, Amen. I, <laughs> yeah. And so I said, well, I want to attend birth. Like after I had my home birth with my second son, so my first home birth, second baby, I told my midwife, I was like, I want to be a doula. Like I need to be at birth all the time. Mm-hmm. And at the time I was working for a hospital, I still am working for a hospital in maternity care. Mm-hmm. And she was like, just become a midwife. You don't have to, you don't have to become a doula first. And I was like, what? And she planted this seed and it has like dug deep roots in my body and I haven't let it go ever since. I love it. That's awesome. Um, so how long ago was that? Oh gosh. Okay. So my, that baby, my baby is going to be three, um, early October. Oh, okay. So right about the same time that I had my oldest. That's awesome. So now question, did you plan on having a home birth or were you a part of like the long list of women that chose to have a home birth after all because of COVID? Yes. Second part. Option D. Okay. Um, I did not plan on having a home birth, although it had crossed my mind a few times, even regardless of COVID, I was like, you know what? That would be awesome. But then I just never thought, I'm like, I'm never going to, that's never going to be something that I would ever do. Mm-hmm. And when my my husband's a nurse at the hospital that I work for, okay, cool. my best friend is also an employee there. My brother-in-law was also at the time an employee there. And then okay. one of my other friends, he was also a nurse there. So our a lot of our family is embedded in that hospital. And they were like, my best friend primarily, she was like, Shiana, these numbers, these COVID numbers, they're just going up. These moms are leaving, you know, positive or, you know, I was also worried about the fact that they knew so little about what the protocols were. They were changing literally almost daily. Mm-hmm. That no way in hell am I going to be separated from my baby. Mm-hmm. And my husband is going to be there. So all of this to say is how I told my husband, I was like, we're not doing this there. I'm not sick mm-hmm. and healthy. This baby's healthy. Why am, why do I have to go to a hospital to have my baby? Mm-hmm. I just began the search for a midwife and about 23 weeks we transferred here. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I'm glad you were able to find one. Oh, my goodness. Back home. So I just moved from California, Southern mm-hmm. California to Tennessee. And back home in my area, I could count, like I can give you 20 different names of midwives just within 30 miles. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we're going to talk about that a little bit later, like the maternal care desert concept. But I didn't realize I'm just used to Tennessee. Like we have a handful. Yeah. I I, I have learned that the hard way since I came here. And mm-hmm. it like I, it's something I definitely think about daily that I am so tempted to just go home and do some of my clinicals with the midwives I know out there because I know how they work. Everyone works together. There's like peer reviews they do together. Um, Just so many things that you, as a birth worker, you need support in and it's all there. Yeah. You need to find. Wow. That's, that's, that gives me a lot to think on. Wow. 
Um, that could be a whole other podcast within itself. <laughs> um, so now that we've talked a little bit about how you got into birth work, I would love to talk a little bit about the foundations. So oftentimes it's presented to us that it's foolish to shop around for providers, which we know is a little bit of a privilege depending on where you live, um, or to consider birthing anywhere other than your local hospital, or to put together a birth plan, any of those things. And we know that the overall health of maternal care in America is extremely low across the board. You talk about that a lot. Um, We also know that the intervention rates and cesarean rates are way too high and that more women that are not walking out of their birth experiences with a positive experience, rather they're walking out with trauma and that's not okay. (laughs) So I would love if we could talk about the cascade of interventions, the importance of being intentional about choosing your caregiver. I like the word caregiver. I don't like the word birth provider because nobody's providing the birth except for your body. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I would love to talk about all of that, where we choose to birth, putting together a generalized birth plan, all of that good stuff. Yeah. So that's a lot to unpack there because I always want to start with what's the experience that you're looking for? Mm-hmm. What are your expectations? Where are we like? Where are we starting here? Uh, if your expectations are you want as much hands-on and you do want all the continuous fetal monitoring and you feel like it's necessary, okay. If this is what you're looking for, then this might be the best location for you. And if this is the best location for you, then we need to find a um, caregiver <laughs> or provider, a care provider, to help mm-hmm. assist you to have that experience fulfilled. Now, if you're looking for more of a hands-off approach or you want something more um, holistic, you're in your safe space, you're at home or what what have you, wherever the case is, then mm-hmm. you find a caregiver that's going to provide and help you support that experience. So the question mm-hmm. always starts with, what are you looking for? What are your expectations out of this? Uh, when it comes to searching for the type of caregiver that you're looking for, I always refer people to the care model system. Um, there's different types of care model. There's the biomedical care model, and then there's the midwifery care model. And I understand mm-hmm. that there's lots of different, you know, biomedical care models depending on the specialty. But specifically for pregnancy care and childbirth, it's it's those biomedical obstetrical care model, and then the midwifery care model. They both mm-hmm. operate in very different capacities with the with varying scopes of practice. Obviously, we know obstetrical care is, uh, obstetricians are surgeons, so their specialty is in intervention and leaning kind of on a technocratic model, technology, relying on technology, um, as, whereas midwifery care is technology is a servant. It's used if necessary. Mm-hmm. Midwifery care model interventions are supportive if needed. Interventions are a part of the routine process in the obstetrical care model. So based on all of that information, after we've looked at the care models together, we're then going to ask, okay, which one do I resonate with most? Which one makes me feel the most safe? Because that's a very primary um, feeling, as you know, that you need to feel 
during childbirth. Otherwise, we're going to have no progress and we're going to come up with complications if mom is not feeling safe. Absolutely. Those are the questions that we want to ask first. And that's kind of where we start with that care model comparison. Then you can pick your care provider. And that's how you kind of navigate that. Now, the importance of, of selecting that provider, because not all obstetricians are created the same. Not all midwives are created the same. And oh yeah, I think we, you know, kind of assume you hear midwife and you're like, oh, okay, this is exactly what I'm looking for. But there are different types of midwives that practice in different mm-hmm. types of settings. And there are different types of obstetricians, right? Like you'll have the obstetrician that is very intervention heavy. Then you'll have some of the ones that are kind of hands off, which I know a couple yeah. And then I know there are a couple that don't even operate within the hospital system anymore. They are operating free range. They're helping midwives as a, as a supportive um, referral system, just information like hub for midwives in a community. Yeah. So you have all of this variety uh, within the space. So then you have to ask yourself again, okay, as I'm meeting with these people as a means to interview them, I'm looking at how do I feel in my body when this person is around me? How are they receiving my questions? Are they supportive of my vision? Do they support me? Right? Do they trust me? Right? Because mm-hmm. if your provider doesn't trust you, then they're not going to trust your intuitive decision making if you decide uh, an intervention is correct for you or not correct you want to include it or not so if we don't have that relationship that we should have then we're not going to have the experience that we're looking for I love that I think that something that a lot of women come to and don't know what to do with is when they are shopping for a provider to know that they can even do that mm-hmm. um I feel like in the mainstream medical care model we are approached with or no it's not we're we're not approached with we are approaching it as okay here's the local person or like here's my only in-network option or whatever with insurance that whole game um it can be really hard to know that like you can even shop around to interview them I know that when I was uh, going through my first pregnancy, I ended up with a midwife and I didn't know the difference at the time. Even with all the birth education I'd had, I didn't know there was a difference between a CNM and a CPM. Mm-hmm. Well, when I was going to shop for OBs to begin with, I wasn't really given a chance to do an interview. So I didn't know that I could ask questions and say, you know, this doesn't feel right. They just kind of book your first appointment and then they just keep booking appointments. And I I don't think that a lot of women actually know that you can shop around. Yeah. And you can ask questions, very poignant questions that can kind of give you clues. I guess you can call them green or red flags or whatever you call them. Mm -hmm. To what type of, you know, how they're going to navigate this care. I actually had a, I just wrapped up one of the childbirth education series um, classes and I have a, I feel like she's 20, maybe 32, 34-ish weeks. And she's like, I don't know where I want to deliver. It's between this this place and this place with this doctor or that doctor. 
And so I go, okay, well, what's the, like, what's having you second guess? And she said, well, he seems a little, you know, old school. And he does, he kind of laughed when I said I wanted to make a birth plan and when I should bring it to him to review. But she's like, I feel bad for leaving because, you know, I've been with him for so long. Like, mm-hmm. my family's been with him before. And so a lot of this, a lot of that was, was fear-based, guilt-based that we you know she was putting on herself and i asked her for a second i said how do you feel when you're around him do you feel validated do you feel like you're being listened to and she was like well kind of not really and then her husband was like be honest you don't every time you leave you feel like you got no questions answered about you know blah 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 I was, yeah. you have your answer you just feel bad mm-hmm. and a lot of times we know how we feel inside if we take a minute to just check in with ourselves and something doesn't feel right. That's your intuition talking. And a lot of times we just ignore that. And over time we've learned to ignore our intuition because of self doubt, because someone told us our intuition was crazy or we, we were being ridiculous or something or dramatic or extra or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. So we learn like we, we subconsciously learn not to pay attention to that intuition anymore and we just start making decisions by default. I think that is a long-rooted overarching issue and that women in general struggle with that, not even just in this area and that our culture has built us up to that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a deep-rooted issue that is very difficult to even dissect, let alone solve but I love how you're walking in these individual scenarios to be able to support women and say hey this actually doesn't have to be the standard anymore right and I think that's how sometimes we end up in that cascade of intervention that you were talking about a little bit Mm -hmm. before because we end up agreeing to something that we may not have wanted to initially agree to um, without understanding what's on the other side of that and that mm-hmm. is the cascade. I think they call it the cascade of intervention because one, you can't just ever have one intervention. It will always lead to another and to another. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time we don't, we are not explained or offered that. Um, we're not offered the depth that we deserve when it comes to what's on the other side of the intervention, right? So, okay, let's look at induction. That looks like it might be a safer route for you. That is not one intervention induction is a myriad of different types of interventions that lead up to many different and we're not we're not seeing that information gone into a lot of depth when it comes to that so people can make what's called a fully informed decision or just not Mm -hmm. yeah no um so i think i know the answer to this question but would you recommend that women actually start birth education preconception? Yes. Okay. Do you want to unpack that a little bit? Because even just choosing your provider and understanding all of this, that's like smack dab at the beginning. Right. I just finished. Uh, it's funny that you asked that because I just finished a training in a fertility awareness method. It's called the Billings Ovulation Method. And as I was going through this training, I thought, wow, I didn't even know I did not know this and I'm, you know, a childbirth educator, right? So we talk, I talk a lot about self-awareness and being aware, but during class, I'm talking to them about the the need to surrender and you can't control everything, right? Like you don't wake Mm -hmm. up every morning reminding your body to add like 
fingernails to your baby's hands and you're not reminding them, oh, okay, today it's time to make the kidneys. Today it's time to make, you're not doing that because your body biologically knows how to do that. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just going to happen, right? It's science. That's, this is yeah. how physiology works, right? Anatomy and physiology. Then we have to back that up. If we cannot trust that process right then and there, that doesn't, that can't just start overnight. You have to start somewhere. So our fertility, our reproductive health, if we don't understand our cycles, we don't understand when we're fertile when we're not. If we're not understanding how our body reacts to different types of shifts in hormones individually, mm-hmm. then how are we going to just try to pack in a self-trust, like a crash course in that one yeah. thing? So to answer your question, yes, it's absolutely important for somebody to understand that ahead of time. Okay. Yeah. I love that. I've been getting a lot, very much into cycle tracking after having my second because I was like, oh, I actually don't want another baby. So I need to figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's been really, really cool to just like dig in and know what my body is doing exactly when it's doing it. The confidence that comes with that has been major for me. Oh, yeah. And it fosters a sense of trust between both partners because then he trusts you that you're tracking, but also it encourages communication and it encourages a level of intimacy that you may not have explored before. So I, I love Yeah. That. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I know. I always laugh anytime. He's like, so where are we at? <laughs> <laughs> My husband does the same thing too. He's what's going on today? <laughs> yeah. No, he... Honestly, keeps better track sometimes than I do, and I love it. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, so let's talk about birth plans for a second because those have become kind of controversial lately. Um, I am a big fan of the birth plan because I like to dig into all of the different options, all the different things that I know I'm going to be considering and coming up with a plan because I'm a planner. So it's better for me to have a well-rounded idea of all of the possible outcomes, all the different things that I would possibly want to do. Like even with my home birth, I had a birth plan and I had a birth plan for if I had to have a transfer, if I ended up at the hospital, if I ended up in any of the situations I did like I did with my first where he was in the NICU. Um, And I made like a generalized plan list of desires for um, my midwife and my birth team. That's often portrayed lately that I've seen in especially in the home birth community that don't make a birth plan. But I've also seen it on the other side, too, of if you make a birth plan, this is ridiculous and I don't want to hear it. And either from the nurses, the nurse side of things, because I follow all of the different birth accounts. So from the nurses, from the obstetricians, from everyone, it's like some people are really pro-birth plan and some people are really, really, really anti-birth plan. And I would love to hear your thoughts a little bit about that and how you dive into that in your birth education work. Yeah. So I, I like to set the expectation. What do you think that, what do you think is the purpose of a birth plan? What do you expect your birth plan to, how do you expect your birth plan to serve you and your experience? Mm-hmm. Because I think what, you know, speaking from, like, I guess on the medical side, what you see a lot is that um, you're expecting your birth plan is a list of things that you want and things you don't want, and that's kind of it, and it's not negotiable, right? 
and that's kind of mm-hmm. where nurses kind of get into this like they're in a bind because they want to respect good ones want to respect their patients and their wishes but then some things come up right and we have to start talking about okay what are some of these alternatives and you know being flexible but also still honoring your um desires and respecting your your preferences so Mm -hmm. there's that then on the other side like you said it's oh birth plans are pointless they're not going to pay attention to them anyway or you don't need a birth plan because it sets the wrong expectation like i think it the question always has to be birth plans inherently are not good and they're not inherently bad it's the individual's perception of the birth plan so Mm -hmm. we have to set the right expectation i like them and i like them because it puts you in the driver's seat and it puts you in the driver's seat of your learning experience because then you're forced to go down a path that you may not have gone down before you can sit through mm-hmm. my five weeks of classes of childbirth education class and i'm just talking to you we're having like a conversation we have fun in our classes and stuff like that but then you're not applying the work on the back end and the whole point mm-hmm. is that i'm giving you tools to put in your toolbox so that you can apply that later so if we're looking at a birth plan it is a, it is a piece of paper right you're writing these things mm-hmm. down but there's a kinesthetic piece to it because you're taking an active physical approach to your care and mm-hmm. sometimes it forces you to look into something that you wouldn't have ever looked into before so let's say um you know one of your preferences not to have your um, what bag of water is ruptured which is an arom an artificial rupture of membranes what if you you definitely don't want that right and you have you have mm-hmm. no idea what this is and you're like okay well now i would know i would want to know first if i'm a first-time mom and i have no idea what this is i'm going to ask myself arom artificial rupture of membranes what is that oh okay that's popping my water bag artificially it's an amniotomy okay why would they do that what do they need to do that for? Okay, they would need mm-hmm. to do it for because they're hearing some irregularities in fetal heart tones. Maybe they want to see if there's meconium in the water. Like they have a lot of, you know, things that they want to see. So now I'm asking these questions that are helping me critically think about this one single intervention. Then I'm going to look mm-hmm. at benefits and risks. And this is multiply this by all the intervention possibilities that there are. It is <laughs> so many. Yes, it's forcing you to go down a path of research and digging in and exploring how I feel about mm-hmm. this one intervention. And if this doesn't make me feel good right now in this in this seat right now, then I'm probably going to say I don't I don't I prefer not to have one. Mm-hmm. So that's kind yeah. of how we And I also think there is some room too for the women who are hearing this and being like I don't want to know all of those things. I don't want to have to know all these details and that's okay too there's so many providers out there that are willing to talk about these things but you have to find someone that you trust to actually explain it when the time comes right and that's the other piece of it because i always like to over prepare uh especially if you're 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 pregnant right now right like you have to make decisions don't wait till you're in the moment to make decisions because then your decisions are made out of what someone else is telling you in here versus now you have to ask all these questions that you could have answered on the front end before you even had the baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously with all of that, 
comes a lot of privilege and that's something that you talk about a lot and I'm so thankful that you do you were one of the first people that opened me up to that terminology of maternal care desert um I think we were talking probably before you even moved and I think you started talking about it back then or probably before that but that's when I started following you and you've talked a lot about that since then so I would love if you would explain real quick what a maternal care desert is um and we can kind of start to dive into a little bit about that so maternity care desert is where there's not a lot of perineal care in a general area and so if if families are having to travel an insurmountable amount of miles to just to have regular routine prenatal care or uh, and or for delivery that is a maternity care desert where we live that's a maternity care desert unfortunately mm-hmm. uh and and a great deal of the united states lives in a maternity care desert unfortunately and the between march of dimes has a great graphic on each state like what they do is break down every single state based on region county and they can show you like the percentages of people like a population that is in an maternity care desert and it's it's unreal between the years i feel like it's 2019 and 2022 or 2021 uh hospitals that were delivering babies shut down NICU units were shutting down. They were just closing, leaving families with absolutely no choice. You have families in like Northern Minnesota that are traveling like two hours or midwives are traveling two hours just to get to a birth because they don't have any delivering hospital. Wow. Up, up here where I'm at, I could count on my hand from what I found. You know, a lot of people have websites here, which I've started to notice. I'm like, where is everybody? Um, there are two and the midwife I work with travels uh, at least a little bit over the uh, Alabama, Tennessee border. She's gone to Kentucky, <laughs> to the Amish. There's just so much like missed care opportunities for these people and that's not to include the fact that if you're in in an at-risk population which usually a maternity care desert is in an at-risk population they may not have any transportation they may not be able to make it 40 minutes to a hospital or to a routine prenatal appointment that's not even to mention access to getting fresh food that's not even to mention yeah. showing up for their postpartum appointments. I know showing up for postpartum appointments in, in regular, like not maternity care deserts, is super, super low. So mm-hmm. now we're even reducing that chance of them showing up to their postpartum appointment because of the maternity care desert. And it's just so, it's just so, if you look at the reasons why, it all comes down to, to money. Mm-hmm. Not for us, wow. not for people. The money that these hospital systems stand to make and government systems stand to make. Yeah. I know where I'm at. It was a full hour to my delivering hospital with my first. And then 
the backup hospital that we had chosen if I needed to transfer from my home birth. And my midwife was 30 or 40 minutes away. She traveled to me. My hospital was going to be 30 to 40 minutes. And that's that's all my options were at least 40 minutes to an hour. Now, my husband could make it in a little bit of a quicker time, but it was still like 45 minutes in the car of extreme contractions because I wanted to stay as home as long as possible with my first. It was awful. It was awful. And that alone is yeah. intervention, getting in your car. it's intervening in the physiological process of your body going through childbirth oh yeah no I am almost confident that I would have had him so much sooner if I hadn't gone because I got there and I stalled wow and but that that's a whole long that's a whole long story (laughs) yeah but that's a long that's a long way to drive I know I know I have a friend up here by me she was like there's no, I mean, there's no hospital. They want to try for a third. She's like, there's no hospital up here. I'd have to travel 40 minutes. 40 minutes is the closest delivering hospital for me. Yeah, it's, it's awful. And midwives, mine was kind of the closest as far as like who was practicing in my area. And she really wasn't even in my area. Like I barely qualified for her to be able to come out to me, which I, I understand because you can only travel so far and it be sustainable so um so I would love to know what your insights are for these women who are falling into these pockets bigger than pockets apparently which is awful what do they have any options you know I'm I would say if there's a midwife that knows that she is in a maternity care desert, please make yourself findable and searchable. If you're taking, if you're taking clients, because if it was hard for me as I, I, I mean, I just moved here within this year and I was looking for midwives even before I moved here so that I could do preceptorship with, and I couldn't find anybody, but there, some of them are here. Make yourself searchable. Make yourself um, easy to find. That's my biggest, like, I guess, recommendation to midwives in this area. Mm-hmm. Don't make it hard for women to find you if that's something that you're, if you're taking clients. Now, for someone who lives in an area that is a maternity care desert, I would just start by looking on social media. And social media, I know we have to create healthy boundaries with this, but it's another topic. But it is a great search engine, and that's what it set itself up to be. I found my midwife in California through Instagram. Mm -hmm. I searched Loveland's midwife, or where I was living, midwife. Boom. All of them popped up. So search um, social media. Facebook groups. Facebook groups are a great place. And um, referrals. So if, like, you know anybody in your area that's recently had a baby or, you know, had a couple kids in the last few years, ask them where they delivered and ask for a good referral. If it's mm-hmm. far away and you have no transportation, check your village. Who's in your village? Who are people that you know that do have transportation that can be a reliable um, person for you to call mm-hmm. on if you need to go to appointments and when you go into labor, when that, what that's going to look like. If you can't find a midwife, that's in your area. Mm-hmm. And if 
transportation is a huge barrier when it comes to being that far away. And then um, just being prepared with all of the education that you possibly can about the delivering hospitals that are close to you. What are their cesarean rates? What are their um, patient satisfaction rates? What is the providing doctors um, or even residents if the residents do deliveries there? What are their what are their rates and reviews? Do it just like you're shopping for something. I mean, I know I read the heck out of reviews, especially like furniture or something. If I'm buying a bed for my kids, I'm not checking out without looking at the review mm-hmm. because I want to know. I want to make sure it's safe. Car seats. Put lots of time going into car seats. Like look at the same. Look at the same things that you would look at if you're buying something for yourself. But. Mm-hmm. You have to have a village. You have to have people that are willing to help you if you live far away from a delivering hospital and there's no midwife. But I would first check for a midwife that's close to you. First and foremost. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Um, so I have kind of a unique question. Well, maybe not super unique. But um, what about those women who know they want to give birth at a hospital? They also know that the rates of intervention are really high for their hospital. Maybe they don't have any other options of other places to go or their insurance. They have they have to go through insurance because, I mean, obviously there's also a financial privilege aspect to all of this, too. Um, I know most midwives allow payment plans, but sometimes even making those payments is not an option for people. Um, so when a woman is in that situation, she knows the rates of intervention are really high. She's stressed out about it. And she wants to get as close to a physiological birth as possible. We'll just use that term for this case. Um, But can't necessarily even afford a doula because I know that's typically a good option. Is there any kind of roadmap to potential support options for her in that scenario? If she can't afford an in-person doula, can she partner with the nurses? Is there any way to establish some relationships beforehand? Or is there anything that she can do to feel a little bit more empowered in that situation? I would say that she would need to be 100% on her own side. I mean by that is unapologetically holding your boundaries. So identifying what those boundaries are and being able to say, yes or no, who crosses them, who doesn't, and and mm-hmm. not being sorry for having them. If there is a partner present, making sure they're on the same page and they can advocate for you because I don't feel like advocacy for a delivering a woman having a baby is necessarily something that I would want her to have to do the entire time she's having a baby. Mm-hmm. And that is primarily because of the adrenaline and oxytocin that can't live together but that's another another topic but yeah (laughs) someone in your corner okay maybe you can't hire a doula but do you have a bestie do you have a friend you have a sister you have Mm -hmm. somebody who knows what your vision for this experience looks like let's have them take a childbirth education class with you if you can't afford childbirth education class come to mine i will let you in for free if that is absolutely zero if you have zero dollars like i cannot I will not ever turn anybody away as a financial barrier. That's just not an option. Mm-hmm. Um, equip yourself with knowledge, with with um, your boundaries and the ability to say yes or no with unapologetically that someone else that is there with you can do the same thing. Um, and then your space is kind of secured and honored. Getting ahead and kind of 
making a relationship with the nurses and and the doctors at some most hospitals you don't know who's delivering because it could be anybody on call or you know a resident resident maybe who knows so mm-hmm. let's say you don't know who's delivering you don't know who your nurses are going to be on that shift it is hard to establish rapport and mm-hmm. a relationship right off the bat so i would initially say like if, if it were me going in and I had no idea for my first time and I am nervous about what you're talking about and I, I am this woman that is in this example, I would be willing to have a conversation with them. I'm so excited. Thank you. What's your name? Like calling them by name um, helps kind of establish a relationship with people. Not, oh, excuse me, but hey, Riley, um, you're my nurse. Riley, do you mind if have an extra pillow like making it personal Mm -hmm. and those are just little things that you can do to establish that rapport with somebody on your team that you may not know yeah I love that idea um I think it can be really easy to make them the villains in the story I know I have in the fat in the past I did have some really unfortunate nurse experiences with my first but I had unfortunate experiences with a lot of staff but I also had some really beautiful experiences with a lot of staff Um, and I think just social media in general can be really helpful to give us an idea of what's really going on but it can also be really easy to plant ideas in our head that explode into something more than it needs to be and gives unnecessary fear in in those situations so I think that's really cool and I a cool idea to make it personal because they are people and they're they're doing their job and a lot of them are passionate about it and excited to be there and want to support you. They're just also overloaded with a million other things that they have to do. Yes. If you think about if you come from in, in social media, I like what you said about that. It is it can be a very divisive place, um, mm-hmm. creating a lot of tension because you may have a lot of people that do need to deliver at a hospital. You know, there's not, I work for a very high risk um, hospital. We see a lot of high risk families that don't want to be there for being high risk. They don't want to, but they are. So, you know, we don't tell them like, oh, you're in for a bad experience because you're here in a hospital. No, that's not at all. We're going to give you the best care that we can based on the information that we have about you and how we operate and we're going to work together. It can be a collaborative approach. I mean, depending on where you are. Yeah. I'm just saying you kind of have to feel that out. Definitely. I love the work that um, I think it's Sarah Levon with Bundle Birth Nurses is doing. Have you seen her work? I haven't. So she's like getting in the hospitals and getting these nurses trained like extra on like here how to use a peanut ball and how to make your patient's experience just a little bit better how to support a little bit more physiological birth and like here's all the things that they may have not necessarily taught you in nursing school or that being like boots on the ground for 10 years has numbed you to and like let's bring the heart back into this her work is really amazing that's awesome you'll have to send or share that with me because I would love to see I think she's based out of the San Diego area. Yeah, but I'll have to send you her stuff because she's, I followed her for years. She was my main birth education with my first. Um, But she, such good work that she's doing. Nice. Yeah, that's needed. Even 
yeah. means spinning babies that travels around the U.S. and all around the world, actually, doing trainings. And yeah. um, we've had the opportunity to schedule some trainings with our nurses. That's awesome. Their work is so cool. Yeah. Um, so I love how passionate you are about preventing birth trauma, but I also appreciate how real you are about the fact that it does happen. Um, and so can we talk about your thoughts on processing that trauma, how to move forward, especially if you want to have more babies and obviously like in those first few months, it can feel really heavy and also in other cases, it can feel kind of numb and then it hit you six months to a year down the line or when you're in the middle of your pregnancy with another baby and it all comes flooding back. I've experienced all of the above with um, my first birth and that trauma. But I would love if you just give a little bit of insight on what you recommend, especially maybe for these women that we're talking about who may not have the extra dollars to hire a therapist or um, to do any of those things that are typically recommended in traumatic experiences. Don't deny it. Don't deny Mm -hmm. that you're feeling some type of way about the way things happened. Um, Learn how to identify birth trauma, first of all. Mm -hmm. And once it's been identified, then don't minimize it. Don't talk yourself out of feeling the way that you feel about it. Um, Making sure that you have someone to talk to about it, because that's really important. Someone that's not going to talk you out of feeling that way. Someone mm-hmm. that's also going to help you validate the way you feel. Because at the end of the day, emergencies happen and things come up. They, mm-hmm. Things go left, things go right, right? We can't control birth. But the way that things are handled is kind of the catalyst to the experience and the outcome. Mm-hmm. So that's all on the front end. But on the back end, once it's all said and done and it's happened, once you start seeing these things creep in, I love a good pen and a paper. I live and die by pen and paper. I write things down all the time, lists, planners. I just, I can't live without like 10 pens in my purse. That's just who I am. Yeah. But writing things down, there are so many studies that show the value and benefit of writing things down Mm -hmm. on paper, not typing it in your phone, not in your apps, not typing it up on your computer, but actually writing it down. Anyway. Um, write down as things come up and present in your mind, write them down and what you're thinking about and how you're feeling. Review some of these things. Maybe you want to journal about it, what have you, and kind of review it, accepting that it's not your fault. Mm -hmm. So acknowledge it, validate it, write it down and accept these things that happened. Occurrences are not your fault. They are part of your story. Mm -hmm. And we write our own story. So you can write your story and how can I use this experience to leverage my future experiences? Not become yes. a victim to my experience, not to live and, and hide in that experience and what happened, but mm-hmm. to rise above and use this as a learning experience to create my next one. And it is very easy to fall into this like this mindset and kind of mull over what happened over and over and over again. But as long as you're using that time to write your story in a way that you are the victor, not the victim. Mm -hmm. 
I think it's really easy to fall into resentment, especially against the people that were around you. And in most cases, you can't go through and work that out. With midwives, it's often a little bit, well, certain midwives, CPMs more than CNMs, being able to talk to them and process your birth and maybe talk through some things that you didn't really love. But in a lot of cases, you can't do that. And so, like for me, I had to do a lot of work writing burning paper like different things to truly release a lot of prayer work to release the resentment that I had against the the people that were present at my first birth Um, but it was also really hard for me not to hold it against myself and to think oh you should have known better or you did know better and you went against your intuition and then that happened because you were there because you left your house all of those things Um, so something that really helped me was just sitting with the fact that God was bigger than all of that and he saw me and he was holding me through all of it but also that I was doing the best with what I had in those circumstances I was going to the hospital because that's what my husband was most comfortable with because of his medical issues that he was born with and we didn't we were just doing the best with what we had and so then the second time around we chose to do the best with what we had at that point and that happened to be being able to have a home birth because that's what we were both comfortable with at that time um and that's a whole other conversation of including your partner in all of those decisions because that's also a very nuanced topic yeah oh yeah for sure that is definitely <laughs> another one but you're right like you can only hold yourself accountable for the information that you have in front of you at this present time mm-hmm. i have i can tell you my my two boys are five years apart and but we have made so many decisions that are like night and day for each one. My oldest is eight. My youngest is almost three. And they have had very different. We have made different choices for, mm-hmm. for both of them. And it is because we did the best with what we had and what we knew at the time within five years. But really quick, my second one, he was almost 11 pounds when he was the one that was born at home. Mm-hmm. He had a shoulder dystocia. And I'm going to be really mm-hmm. honest with you. We had a shoulder dystocia situation. It was resolved, like, in the most beautiful way. I can't even tell you. I had no trauma from that mm-hmm. experience. He came out. He needed breasts. They did NRP. And then, um, but my trauma came from when we took him into the NICU. We took him to mm-hmm. the hospital to get checked. And they guaranteed that we would not be separated. Again, 2020, okay? They were like, you're not going to be separated. There's no need to be separated, blah, blah, blah. He was, he was breathing fine when we got there. He was fine. That we're just going to check. We're just going to make sure he's okay. Preventative, right? I get up. My husband follows the baby. I get up um, to postpartum. And one of, my, one of my good friends from college, she's a nurse up there, she met me. And I was, and Josh, my husband, calls me and he was like, where are you? And I said, I'm in postpartum. Where are you? How's the baby? And he was like, I don't know where they are. Girl, I just about lost it. Mm. I just, I, I didn't just about, I lost it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it wasn't the birth itself. It was the way that they handled it on the other side once we did transfer in. And mm-hmm. I was livid. Another conversation for another time, right? We have yeah. we have lots to unpack on the other. Oh yeah, that's that's my whole point. And you know, sometimes and 
to be 100% honest with you, I go back in my mind about the dystocia, the shoulder dystocia. And I'm like, man, maybe I should have been upright more. Maybe I should have changed positions when I was pushing right there on all fours. Maybe I should have lifted my leg. Like I go through, I go through that, those moments leading up to it often in my mind, Mm -hmm. what I could have done. But then I'm thinking, you know what? God knew what this experience was going to be and why, why this experience is what he allowed us to have. And I'm forever grateful for that. Mm. Yeah. I, uh, similarly with my NICU experience, getting separated, the whole thing, it was 2020. It was awful. Um, A lot of unnecessary separation, admittedly, on the, like, the staff admitted to the fact that it was unnecessary. And they also admitted to lying to coerce me for certain things because they were not happy with my decisions. Um, But that's also, that could be a whole hour-long conversation but what I have taken from that on the other side is the experience that I had in that I have so much compassion for those women that have had to deal with that and I've had so many friends now that have had their babies go to the NICU and I've been able to walk with them through that and just sit with them in that space and know exactly what they're feeling and if for any reason other than that like I will take that because God has been able to give me a perspective to be able to sit with people and like one of the most heart-wrenching horrible experiences that I think a new mom can have um, outside of losing her baby or having to deal with severe medical issues like the the feeling of being separated in those first few hours in those first few days it is undescribable and so if if I only have that experience just to be able to sit with my friends and sit with those women who are also walking through that and maybe don't have as much support or who don't have a great hospital team around them that aren't really loving on them right. or the ability to have family members come in and love on them or whatever, I will take that mm-hmm. Yeah, and just try to do the best with what I can from that situation. Yeah. We're given, we're given experiences and it's up to us what we do with them. Mm-hmm. And we're responsible, we should be responsible for those. And if we can use that to serve just one person, yeah. I think it's a valuable takeaway. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Where can people find you? How can they work with you? I know you've talked about a lot of different things that you offer. Yes. Um, this question. So I, <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm on Instagram mostly. Mm-hmm. It's at Simply Jean B. And then I do have a website, GianaNataliaV.com. I am in the middle of revising it because it is very California-centric to my California clientele and base. And so I am trying to revise it for um, for both. My, both of okay. my homes, Tennessee and California. So I'm working on that, but it's still there. But it contact-wise and offerings-wise, how we can work together-wise, like you can find that on Instagram for sure. Okay, perfect. I'll link all of that in the show notes. Well, thank you again so much for just taking the time, um, just holding space for this conversation. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. It was an honor to get to talk to you. I was so happy to uh, to talk to you finally face-to-face. <laughs> I know, I know. 
um hopefully one day we can actually get together in person (laughs) for sure with both of our boys that sounds awesome but yes i know i know i would love that that was such a good episode um a lot of technical difficulties glad you didn't have to see those hopefully it's not too obvious um but i really appreciated uh just how honest uh jana was and um it's just really cool to see that people are passionate and also heartbroken for circumstances. Um, I think that is one of the greatest motivators for change. And so I'm really excited to see what Gianna continues to do. And uh, yeah, if you want to follow along, I'm going to put all her stuff in the show notes. But you can follow her again at simplygnv on Instagram. She's got some great content. So if you're into the birth world or pregnancy or preconception, any of it, definitely give her a follow. And you can follow me um, at InBetweenMama on instagram facebook twitter at the in between mama on tiktok and you can check out my website inbetweenmama.com for more of our show notes um all the different episodes and uh, my blog post yeah all that so i hope you enjoyed definitely subscribe leave a review on spotify apple Podcasts, or here on youtube and yeah i'm again thank you so much for listening it means the world to me that you tune in and that you hold space for me and my crazy dreams of conversations that I want to have with uh, women who have walked a few steps before me. So thanks again for listening and I will uh, be back soon.